Well, good morning. We're so glad that you're here worshiping with us this Sunday. It's so good to see so many of you here uh, in person worshiping. And those of you who are joining us online, we're grateful to you uh, for tuning in this July Sunday. The best things in life are free. Our sermon series these past several weeks, as we've journeyed through the Sermon on the Mount, looking at those kingdom values, those kingdom principles, that though on the outside may appear to be I don't know, ironically prosperous, are in fact the very source of the freedom that God's called us to. How do these values guide what we're for, keeping us from those things that we're not designed for? Today we're going to continue that in in Matthew chapter 5. So if you want to grab your Bible, you can turn with me there. We'll be reading uh, verses 38 uh, to 42. Before we begin to read are you an Apple user like me? I, I have probably purchased way too many Apple products and contributed to uh, a value of stock that I don't even own, um, as many as any other American. So I, I am fully in the, the Apple universe, ecosystem, whatever you want to call it. Well, if you're familiar at all with Apple's uh, hardware or software platforms, you know that each and every year, uh, they show up at Steve Jobs Theater, and they present to developers in one conference and to consumers in another their new products, right? And I guess like any good marketing ploy, they tell you what? That what you have is old, dead, and rickety, and what you need is this flashy new software that we've developed, right? They come up with these slick terms. They tell you it's the fastest things they've ever made. They tell you it's the most beautiful instrument you've ever used, Maybe you've heard these. I was watching recently uh, the the recent developers showcase of the same event. At at some point, you begin to think, man, does it just keep getting better with time? And I've got this whole, you know, dead, beat up, uh, normal phone. Do I really need that one that much? Well, you could say that that Steve Jobs took took a play uh, out of Jesus's playbook. Go with me. Hold on. We're about to, to come to a passage in the Sermon on the Mount where essentially Jesus has shown up at Steve Jobs' theater. And he's, he's not saying what is in the past is bad. No, no, no. Quite the opposite. He's saying it was good, but it wasn't complete. It wasn't full. You see, Jesus has shown up on the, in the pages of history, this obscure Jewish rabbi. And he's showing up to say, I have the message that, that ends, that completes every software update you've ever dreamed of. So this morning, we're going to hear what he has to say, what has been developed, what is now available to the people of God as we grow in increasing freedom. Let us pray before we dive into the words of Scripture. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp into our feet and a light unto our path. If it does these things, which we believe that it does, we pray now that it would show us the way, the way to grace and the way to truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear God's word, verses 38 to 42. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. 
But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is God's word. It's absolutely true. And it's given to you and I in love. Okay, Dirty Harry's Make My Day has echoed through the halls of history since that movie was, was released some 25 or 30 years ago, right? And you remember the, the terrible scene, and I'm not advocating the movie, that the detective Clint Eastwood's character arrives to a diner and uh, a perpetrator is holding hostage, one of the, one of the clerks there, and, and he sort of grumbles through his Clint Eastwood squint and says, make my day, which is to say, you go on and do that act of violence so that I can do what I need to do to you. Right. Kind of gruesome, huh? Good morning. Happy Sunday. It gets worse. There's another American institutional image, right? It, it, it's, it's this image of a, of a skull. Okay, here we go. And it's got the mouth kind of looks like a hockey mask or, or, the, or the face mask of a football player. Do you know who I'm talking about? I'm talking about that Marvel anti-hero, the Punisher. Remember this terrible story? His family is just ravaged uh, with violence, and he responds and goes on this rampage to avenge his family's death. Okay, these are big examples that point to a very real reality, even in our hearts this morning. And it's this. We like to get even. In fact, we're convinced that that, that the reason we do get even is good. It's for good purposes. It's a noble thing to do. One of my favorite stories about getting even, see, I'm even confessing to you, um, was in 1984. It was a Braves-Padres brawl on the baseball diamond. The pitcher for the Braves, uh, Pascal Perez, drilled the second baseman in the back. And for the next three at-bats that, that Perez had, they try to hit him back, right? You like this. You get excited when you watch these things. All right, he's going to hit him. And then they finally hit him. I think it was the sixth or seventh inning, and just the dugout's clear. <laughs> and it just becomes this, this, this brawl that has just been, that's been boiling. You see, whether it's the sad images of, of true violent retaliation, if it's sort of the immature actions of men with too much testosterone, or it's simply you're not trying to get even around your coworkers when your supervisor comes at you in the middle of them. See, it can be ordinary. It can be very plain. It can be when that person sort of passes you. Or maybe the person driving fast in the slow lane. And you have to get around, right? Getting even is, is everywhere, even in the smallest of ways. Recently was, uh, was out and about, and, and I had a couple of cars come behind me racing one another. And like one was, drove around the other car. Here I am in my little bike, and I'm like on the edge of the road, and, and they just like race. And then one of them's like trying to pass the other. And if had I thought about it soon enough, I think I would have yelled and started cursing, but it happened so fast. I didn't have time to get even. But you see, even in these small instances, the temptation... Uh, to want to get back, to, to so, quote, serve justice. It's just a part of who we are, broken. 
as we are. See, here's the kicker. We think that we'll find freedom when we get even. We think we will. We think there will be a relief in the pain we've been experiencing when we retaliate. We do. Think about the terrible stories of, of, of loved ones dying maliciously and how, how all these activist movements develop as a means of trying to uh, rectify the situation. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that there is a certain way in which we can promote policies that protect us, particularly vulnerable people, from the evil of others. But this is what we go for. And Jesus is telling us here that you're tempted to seek freedom there. But I'm about to turn that on its head and show you where real freedom is found. You see, our depraved hearts convince us that retaliation will actually bring justice. Now, it's a good thing to want. It's a good thing to want what is right. It is a good thing to want that. But the problem is when, 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 when the curse of, of sin saturates deep into our soul, our motivations, and our hearts, that a good desire gets twisted. And that's what retaliation is. It's a good desire gone bad. Jesus said, you've heard it said. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You've heard this. This is, this is the law of retaliation, right? This is the law of retaliation. And he's actually, so a few, a few occasions in the Sermon on the Mount, he'll, he'll say this, this sort of introductory language, and he'll be referring to something like an oral tradition, right? So something that the scribes or, or priests through the, through the years particularly that intertestamental period, would have begun to sort of add to the Scriptures. But in this instance, he is referring to Scripture itself. You've heard it said. So this isn't a knock at any sort of scribal error or, or, or an addition to the law. In fact, there's a few places in Scripture where we see this is exactly quoted. Maybe you've heard the, the Latin phrase that, that as we look back in history and refer to this this, this style of law is lex talionis. But here's the thing. We, we look back of it with, with something of, a, of, of contempt. Like, come on, that is gruesome. That is barbaric that people would want to do that. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But that's actually wrong. The law of God, coming from the very heart of God, as he developed this law for his people, was for this, proportionate justice. So that, the, so that the, the punishment would fit the crime. It was never intended to be taken literally. In fact, it was developed to keep people from personally retaliating. See, you've heard it said, eye for an eye. And you've come to think of this as some sort of um, way that you can get back at. And maybe even observe the pain that you're able to give back to someone who's hurt you. First of all, you misunderstood me there. But now I'm going to flip it on its head. You've heard it said, but I say, do not insist on your rights. That's it. Do not insist on your rights. The first part of verse 39 says, do not resist an evil person. Despite the motivations of someone who is being cruel to you, do not insist on your rights. 
This is how Jesus is taking what was originally good and turning it into and deepening it as, as far as it can go to express the reality of his heart the most. That when you are insulted, demeaned, shamed, even perhaps physically harmed, your attitude, your posture toward those people, that institution, that thing, do not insist on your rights. Do not assert your rights. And then he goes on to sort of illustrate this principle. And I'm just going to hit a couple of them, after which I, kinda, I want us to explore um, what makes Jesus' words so unique and hopefully land with some application there at the end. You've heard it said, lex talionis. You've gotten that twisted. You think justice can come when I get back at the people who've harmed me. Heck, isn't that what makes competition in college football so fun? I mean, don't insist on your rights. That's who we as a covenant community are called to be like. That's what we're supposed to present to other people. Man, it's like these people don't even belong to themselves. We don't. We belong to Christ and to one another. So don't insist on your rights. In a couple of ways, he illustrates this. The first is, is being insulted. The second part of verse 39, you, this, this whole idea of a backhanded slap, right? If you've ever studied this, this portion of Scripture, you learn this pretty quickly, that, that what's being referred to here is not, is not uh, two high school boys brawling on the, on, on a, in the basketball court, right? This isn't an assault. I'm sorry that all my illustrations are about men, like, being, like, aggressive toward another. I mean, I work with, with students, so I think this is where this comes from. I'll, I'll work on my, my illustration game to make it a little bit more holistic because there's a lot more opportunity to, to express this reality. Nevertheless, you know what I'm talking about. He's saying, when you're insulted, you're going to be tempted to get back, right? And, and this is a backhanded slap, right? You already know what this means sort of culturally. You don't even, we live in America and we still understand what's being communicated here. This is like a superior officer in, in a military function or a, a parent or a teacher, someone who has authority over you, a supervisor perhaps at some point in history, sort of handing you a backhanded slap, and it was intended to insult, and it had its effect. It was often done in the presence of others, so it was just sort of public humiliation, sometimes deserved, and that's going to distinguish it from the next illustration, sometimes deserved. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I'm getting a backhanded slap when I go to buy a car, right? It's like, man, you, you are just, I mean, what does it take? I just, I just, I just want a vehicle to drive that, that, that's, that's safe and that, that we can afford. And you feel like you're just being insulted as you get along, go along in this process. You see, the insult slap still carries enormous symbolic weight today. If you, if you traveled to India... Uh, other, other parts of the Middle East, and even in, in, in our Palestinian culture, from which these words come to us, it, it still carries weight. In fact, so much so that the CIA was seeking to advocate this in its interrogation processes against terrorists. I don't believe it ever happened, but that culturally, this was an insult. And Jesus is saying, as, as much as you want to, Turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. And what is he not saying? 
He is not telling the abused spouse to turn the other cheek. Okay? It's not what he's saying. He's not talking about global passivism. He's not talking even about public policy per se. He's talking about the attitude of the covenant community. That even as you're insulted, perhaps in this flamboyant way, right? This is what illustrations do. They represent a larger reality. You're, you're slapped. Turn to the other cheek and give them that one. You've heard this quote before, but Catholic thinker um, in the last century, G.K. Chesterton, was once asked, what is wrong with the world? Do you remember what he said? I am. The people of God understand that the only difference between them and the worst criminals on the planet is not a condition of quality, but of quantity. Do you see how that creates a certain compassion? Do you see how that creates a certain humility that even when you're insulted, you don't have to get back because you know that it's only God's grace that you're not doing some of the things that, that perhaps someone else may be doing. Restraining grace. Our hearts are no different, right? This is why we're not shocked by crime. We're saddened by it. We know exactly what the human heart is capable of, but we understand that, that our response to it is, is to be broken over it, to pray for it. But God's mercy would, re, would constrain it. So don't insist on your rights, even when you're insulted. And secondly, even when you're demeaned. Even when you're demeaned. So verse 40, talking about a poor person, and, and, and they, they've gone, they've been sued. And if anyone would sue you, take your tunic, which is to say something like an undergarment or a t-shirt, or perhaps in our day and age would be something like an undershirt, but let him have your cloak as well. This could be a jacket. This could just be uh, just something. It doesn't have to be bulky, but it was likely draping and, and, and an outer coat. And, and for the poorest of society, they would have only had these two garments. You know, other um, economic classes would have had a little bit more. But the, but the point and the illustration is this, again, because it's pointing to a larger reality, a larger temptation to us uh, to, to get even would be this person would be practically naked in the courtroom. I mean, public humiliation, exclamation point. Even when you're demeaned, right? I'm about to share a story about a time that I was bullied. I've told the students this, so they were like, this is annoying. But, um, I was ready to get back. Okay, so I'm playing backyard basketball. Uh, I'm probably, uh, I don't know, Walker Jackson's age maybe, and um, which is like, you know, 17, right, Walker? Um, and I'm playing basketball, and I'll never forget, he was, he was in the neighborhood. His name was Rob. I hope he never listens to this. Rob Lipscomb, and uh, he, he was big. I mean, he was tall. He was heavy. I mean, he's like one of those people that gets recruited. His size was just naturally much larger than mine. Well, he got mad because my team, I think, beat him at a, a sort of bas backyard pickup game. Y'all, and he picked me up. Picked me up, okay? Kicking, I'm kicking and screaming. And he threw me in a trash can. He threw me in a trash can. He walked to the front of his driveway. He opened the lid and tossed me in. 
here I was, 110 pounds soaking wet, right? And uh, we, so it was like, you know, I mean, you, you could get back, Skylar, but that wouldn't go well for you. I mean, he, I, I'd, I'd seen him go at it with a couple people. I was like, you don't stand a chance. I think my team kind of got back at him by, by continuing to beat him. But nevertheless, nevertheless, I, I sort of laugh about that, but that actually had a pretty deep impact on me. I was a pretty, I don't know, manly, pretty typical kind of high school boy. And when he did that, man, that just like, that was like a blow. I felt, you know, this big. So much so I don't even think I ever told my parents or anyone. (laughs) Until now I'm using my life as an illustration. That pales in comparison what Jesus is talking about. He was demeaned. If someone sues you for this, give them more. What is wrong with you, Jesus? You see, we think freedom comes when we get even. But he's saying, just try me out. When we respond not with getting even, but with generosity, with magnanimity, we begin to feel, experience, and share with others the freedom that God has for us. You see, we live in a culture where you do anything and everything you can to protect your image, your reputation, and your dignity. I mean, there's life coaches all around Thomasville that say, here's how you can keep people from taking advantage of you. And yet Jesus is saying, be wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove. You know, don't we're not pacifists. We're not just, you know, ready to be martyred for, in the name of Christ. Again, this is an attitude. This is a heart condition. This, this can manifest itself in a number of ways, right? Fruit uh, that bears on the root of, of this type of heart. That when I'm demeaned, I let them have more, right? So as I was looking at this passage, and this is where we're going to make a, a bit of a transition I just kept thinking to myself, and I've struggled with this uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, and it's, you know, Jesus often teaches through stories and parables, and he's got some sort of nugget that you got to mine out of here, and, it, and it's so it can become applicable, and it's really beautiful and eloquent. Folks, the Sermon on the Mount is, is about as straightforward as it comes. And I think there's at least one reason for that, and that's in an oral culture, people could memorize this thing. Like, the... He went to the least common denominator so that his message would stand. So I'm looking at the Sermon on the Mount. I was like, this is pretty obvious. There's really nothing fancy here. But one of the things I personally struggle with, Lord, is like what distinguishes you from other views that share the same opinion? Let me tell you what I mean. For centuries, people across the planet, I mean, perhaps since the beginning, struggled with this idea of revenge. Shakespeare said, if you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? Confucius, that Chinese thinker whose thoughts later would develop Hinduism, Buddhism. Quote, before you embark on a journey of revenge, dig two graves. Gandhi seemed to agree with him and said, An eye for eye only ends up making the whole world blind. The whole karmic system, you get exactly what you deserve. You reap what you sow, literally. Jesus, what is different with you? 
not because I want to defend him, but because as I'm thinking about people who don't know him and, and what makes him so compelling if he just shares the same message. See, the Sermon on the Mount, it, it's radical, but some of his thoughts are not novel. So just a couple of things. Actually, three, really quickly. Three. One, all wisdom everywhere is sourced in the wisdom of God. All wisdom everywhere is sourced in the wisdom of God. So in some way, you could say, hey, you stole that from me, even though it's kind of a petty argument. Uh, but, but it still remains true, right? But here's the two that I kind of want to land on for you all. There's, there's a different goal, and there is a different motivation to you and I bearing witness to the world by not getting even. By our version of that, there's two distinct differences. The first, the goal. The people of God have one motivation. It's how our catechism begins. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The reason for all of our good behavior, the reason that we would ever want to show good into the world is not for our own sake. It's for the one who, who has created us and redeemed us. So our motivation is not even for ourselves. Now, Scott is like, well, you can't really tell that always. Well, well, true, you can't always tell the difference in that, which provides an opportunity for partnership. But the goal is very different. The goal of other philo philosophies and worldviews is, I want to be gentle, but it's true, is man's praise. You see, the Christian pursues others' flourishing, right? That's our goal. It's, it's ultimately, though not always practiced, altruistic because it's not about you and me. And the other is really, 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 I mean this kindly, deep down is a self-centered happiness desire. So goal is different. Glory, personal praise. Motivation is absolutely different. The Christian is motivated by grace. Paul would write about this in Galatians. He said, Jesus has lifted the curse of the law, not because it was bad, but because it was a burden. We couldn't keep it all the way, but it didn't make it bad. Lex talionis isn't bad. It just is incomplete. And now what was, what was the beast of burden is now the delight of our lives. So we're motivated by a freedom, right? What was once just duty and obligation has become delight, joy, life-giving freedom. And you see the other options they really are just desperate for a self-actualization idea. You see, deep down, we just want to accept ourselves and we want other people to accept us. Right? This is, this is a deep desire in our hearts. And yet, it stands in such contrast to what it means to follow Christ with a generous spirit and turning the other cheek. You see, we're not racking up the, the platitudes, the the, the attitudes, the, the, the trophies of good works. We're not. We've been given the opportunity to serve the one who has called us and saved us by grace as a gift. So we have a radically different goal. And we have a deep, deep difference in motivation. Turn the other cheek. Do not insist on your rights. Do you see that the, the person who speaks this is, is actually coming from a different perspective? And this is how I will close our time with a story. 
you maybe have not read or heard The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe lately. But hear this allegory of what distinguishes the message of Christ, the person of Christ, the kingdom that he's calling us to, and those of other options. Remember the story quickly. Remember how Edmund, he betrays his family. He commits treason to Narnia. That Turkish delight was too good. For me, it would be a flower's honey bun. I would be in there. It'd be hard for me to resist that. And he can't. And he falls headlong under the witch's spell. What does Aslan do? He rescues him. Okay, but it doesn't end there. He understands, the witch understands, that, that universal law around all people is that, that traitors' blood must be rendered. There must be something to atone for such an act. Aslan knows this. So he neither denies her claim to seek his life, Edmunds, or minimizes the severity of his crime, but rather Aslan does what? We sing about it, come thou fount, interposes himself between Edmund and the witch, allowing the full brunt of the wrath meant for Edmund to fall on his own head. You see, Aslan had all the power to fix it. He didn't have to go that route, but why did he? This is where we're going to close the gap on the sermon. Instead, he turns himself over to be beaten and shamed and killed. He does not resist the evil of the witch. Do you hear that? That was the banner that hung over this whole time. You don't insist on your own rights. Rather, he absorbs and neutralizes it. Lucy is quoted as saying, The shorn face of Aslan now looks to her braver and more beautiful and more patient than ever. You see, because when Aslan turns the other cheek, he does so out of a position of strength. His self-sacrifice unlocks and unleashes a divine power that shatters the table that he was killed on and affects his resurrection. Aslan would later say, by this act, death itself begins to work backward. To turn the other cheek, Christian, is not to surrender to weakness or despair, not self-pity, but to convert hatred into love, defeat into victory. 1 Peter 2.23 says this, when they hurled their insults at him. All right, now we're not talking about Aslan, right? At him, Jesus. He did not retaliate. Instead, when he suffered, he made no threats and entrusted himself to him who judges justly. First Presbyterian Church family and friends, do not seek to get even. Because your God in heaven didn't get even with you. Do you want to be free? Resist the temptation to get even. Rather have an attitude of dependence upon the Lord and and, and turning the other cheek, not in a passive way, but by a source of strength. Generosity is the upside-down value that leads to the freedom that we're all seeking. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we know that, that grace doesn't grow on trees. And despite our best efforts to, to really presume upon it and just offer grace to people like, like we have it to give, we know that you 
Jesus have purchased the price of grace. And it's by it and through it that we come to believe that we can actually stand in the gap, live life here in Thomasville in 2020 with so much going on, with an attitude of generosity, with one that says, it's not my strength, but Christ's alone. My goal, may it be, Lord, for your glory and your fame and your honor forever. Lead us, your people, to the upside-down values of your kingdom today, tomorrow, and forever.